So I guess what we're going to do is we're going to do a character study, more, more, more or less a character study on Saul, who I do want to touch on to begin with, um, just to give us a little bit of context in how his relationship was with Jonathan, and then the relationship between Jonathan and David, and how all of them play within that story and develop with one uh, another. So it's, we're going to break it down into kind of three sections of the three different relationships uh, within there. So open up to 1 Samuel. Um, but to give us a bit of context before we read from 1 Samuel 8, there were four Old uh, Testament judges. And I know you can say, you know, judges, there was 12 or whatnot, but there are, there is, sorry, 14 um, Old Testament judges. And the 14th one was uh, Samuel. And I guess he was leading Israel as God's appointed judge and prophet at that time. But the thing is, Samuel at that point was an old man or he was getting old and there was no rightful candidate to take over as, uh, as a judge or as a leader of Israel. His sons were wicked and they just weren't fit to follow in their father's uh, footsteps. So I guess the people of Israel came up with this idea and said, you know, it's time for us to, to have a king. Let's, um, let's have uh, a king like all the other nations. So we'll pick up the story from 1 Samuel 8, 4 to 6. And it says this. Then all the leaders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Israel at this point was ruled for a period of around 350 years by whether it's judges, prophets or priests. Um, the point is by godly appointed leaders at that time. And the people of Israel were saying, we want a king like all the other nations. So essentially, by requesting this, they're moving away from the model God has designed for the nation of Israel, and they're adapting to culture. They're adapting to society and what other countries were moving towards. It wasn't a, a specific attack on Samuel, but it was an attack on God because the kingdom of Israel went from what is called at that time a theocracy and now moving into a monarchy, which we know what that is. Um, and Samuel gives this really insightful warning to the people of Israel. I won't read it because there's a few things, but I'll give you a little bit of a summary of um, what Samuel said to the people of Israel. So in summary, he said something along the lines of, you'll be forced to work in the king's field and all for the king's sake. Um, you'll be forced to improve military. Your sons will be forced in the army. Your daughters will be taken captive to, to work in service of the king, uh, the king's are going to take whatever that they want from the land, that you're going to be forced to pay taxes and uh, a payment is going to be demanded for sure. You'll become servants and slaves. You'll have no freedom and be abused by the king. So that's kind of what Samuel was warning uh, the people at that point. And in 1 Samuel 8, 18 to 20, it says, when the day comes, this is um, Samuel speaking, when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. 
then we'll be like other nations with the king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. So after that, Saul becomes the first king's first king and his uh, shortcomings appear very, very early on. And we're going to look at the monarchy family of uh, King Saul with a particular focus on Jonathan, his son. And in, in 1 Samuel uh, 9.20, Saul then gets appointed. And a little bit of context um, at that particular point, Saul is a farmer uh, and his family were also farmers and he was working with his dad. And three of his father's donkeys go missing and Saul just goes about in search for them so he can, he can bring them back. But on his journey, he couldn't find these donkeys. And while he was looking for them, he ran into Samuel. And Samuel pretty much tells him, you know, don't worry about the donkeys. They've been found. You're going to become the king of Israel. And as we know from the Bible, Saul was tall. He was dark. He was handsome. And he was from the warrior tribe of Benjamin. And as we mentioned a few weeks ago, he seemed like the perfect king from a human perspective and if you're kind of thinking right now David touched on this before like just just bear with me um it, the context kind of links together and we'll we'll develop the story a little bit further. um yeah so from a human perspective he seemed to be the perfect king but unfortunately his character didn't match the outward appearance of Saul and this king failed in many ways and this king who did fail in many ways reigned over Israel for 40 years, for 40 years. So it's quite a, um, a long time, but it didn't take too many of those years for the flaws to become apparent for, um, for the nation and for everyone involved, I guess. And when Saul found out that he would become king, he actually kept that to himself and he didn't tell anyone. And when the time had come for him to be presented before the people of Israel, he hid among the supplies and hid among the back baggage. So he's being presented in front of people and he's kind of hiding away. So we straight away see, even before he became king, he was a coward, he wasn't confident, he was shy and wasn't really fit to be um, king. He might've been fit to be a king physically, but in a lot of other ways, he wasn't. So these flaws would consistently come up for him as a leader and as we just said, Jonathan was Saul's son. And at that point, he would have been thinking that, you know, one day I'm going to be king. Because when the king dies, it's usually the son who takes charge and takes over from his father. And no doubt Jonathan would have been giving this some thought at, the, at that point. Especially because he knew that his father's, he, he knew his father's weaknesses. And he didn't accept the crazy plans that we'll go into in a little bit. So now we've got this character of Saul and now he's king. So we go into the first battle that Saul had as king and it was against the Ammonites in chapter 11 where he was actually victorious. So the people of Israel are like, yeah, like this is our king. We wanted this guy and he's doing great. So at that point they were happy. But within the first two years of Saul's reign, the Philistines were, you can say, back and gaining strength to fight Israel. But Saul had nothing to fear because if we go back to 1 Samuel 9.16, God promised to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And we'll pick up the story now in 1 Samuel 13 to 
two till three. And to give you a little bit of background, Jonathan at that point is probably about in his early 20s or is a, a teenager of some sort. So between that uh, time period. So it says in chapter 13, verse 2, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul, Mishmash, and the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that were at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. So what we just read is, it's not that Saul who actually led a fight, but it was Jonathan who actually took initiative and won that particular war. But the war wasn't over at that point. The Philistines were furious because they were attacked and defeated in that sort of mini war, as to say, and taken over by Jonathan. Um, and then we'll continue in 1 Samuel 13, 5. And the Philistine mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops, like the sand on the seashore in multitude. So the Philistines were crazy mad at this, uh, this defeat. And they, they mustered this massive army and Saul's men and his army react in fear as we're about to read. And here is what they did in verse six. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble for the people were hard pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed, crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal and all the people followed him trembling. There was actually so many people that fled that there was only 600 men left. So if we look at this, the army is actually a reflection of their king, of this weak king is reflected in his army. And Saul, again, had no reason to fear because earlier Samuel told him in 1 Samuel 10, 8, go ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offering and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. So here we have Saul. At that point, he's waiting for Samuel to arrive. And it's now the seventh day, as uh, Samuel had told Saul. So Samuel hasn't arrived yet. And Saul is getting desperate. You know, there's pressure from the army and there is fear and you know, he needs to kind of make a decision and act now as the king. So because of all that's happening around him, he decides to take matters into his own hands. And keep in mind that Saul was not an authorized offerer of sacrifices. So in 1 Samuel 13, 9, he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Saul was seeking a blessing from disobedience. In verse 10, just as he'd finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. And to give you a bit of context, back in the book of Numbers, God commanded that it actually is forbidden to take over the role of a priest if you are not a priest. And there was actually a later king by the name of Uzziah who got struck with leprosy because he's this exact same thing. So we continue in verse 11. 
He says, what have you done? Asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattered and that you did not come at the set time and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. So all he's doing right now is just shifting blame. Verse 13, you've done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. If you had, it would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So this was a test for Saul, and he actually failed this test, you know, because Saul disobeyed, and he was now replaced by a man after God's own heart. And we obviously know who that is, David. At that time, Saul disobeyed the offering commands, and Jonathan was not actually present at that time. So Jonathan, at this particular point, doesn't know that his father has ruined the potential of his son ever becoming king. Because Jonathan being the prince at that time, once his father had passed away, he was going to take over. But now God has sought someone else. Someone else. So Jonathan doesn't know any of this right now. Um, and he decides in chapter 14, Jonathan, he decides in chapter 14 to attack the Philistines. So we start from verse one in chapter 14. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young arm bearer, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. We continue in verse 12. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Senna. And in Hebrew, Bozes actually means slippery and Senna means sharp. So you've got these two people, Jonathan and his arm bearer, and they want to take over this, um, uh, this, this army of the Philistines. So it sounds like a suicide mission because they, these two men need to climb a sharp and slippery cliff to get to the Philistine camp. And obviously the Philistines would not expect this attack at all. So in verse 6, Jonathan said to his young arm bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our, in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving us, whether by many or by few. So we see here that Jonathan is actually the opposite of his father. He's a brave man who trusts in the Lord and believes that what the Lord has said will come to pass. So Jonathan said to his arm bearer, climb after me. The Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Then we continue in verse 13. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in the area of about half an acre. So as I said, it was an unexpected attack. The Philistines ran away and they panicked, as we are about to read in verse 15. And panic struck a whole army, those in the camp and field, and those in the outposts and raiding parties, and the ground shook. There was panic sent by God. So God is looking down at the bravery and trust that Jonathan and the, and the arm bearer had in him, 
And he did exactly as he promised, with the help of this earthquake that we just read that God has sent. In verse 20, then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. They followed the Philistines and um, they found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other by their sword. So essentially a lesson from this, that it was never about numbers for God. God wasn't concerned how many people were on the, 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 the army of Israel, but it was always about obedience, not about number. Now, before the battle had actually begun, Saul, the king, gave a really, really stupid order to um, the, the, um, the army, the army of Israel, the soldiers. That's the word that I was looking for. At that point, uh, Jonathan was actually acting independently, as we just said, his father didn't know about this at the beginning. So in chapter 14, verse 24, now the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath, saying, cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. When I read that, I just ask myself, mate, like, what, what are you doing? Now, you've, you only have 600 men now and you tell them not to eat. Some of us can't even function without coffee in the morning, let alone a war. Right. So obviously this is going to make the army weak and it's going to make them ineffective. And then Saul went to save God after being advised to do so. And he went to pray. But um, God didn't answer him. Uh, God didn't, didn't speak back to him. And Saul believed that the problem with this battle and why God didn't speak to him at that point was because someone had broken the rule that he had just given Someone must have eaten, Saul was thinking. So we pick it up again in verse 38. Saul therefore said, come here, all you who are leaders of the army, and let us find out who, find out what sin has been committed today. As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if the guilt lies within my son Jonathan, he must die. But not one of them said a word again. How stupid is this? Another really stupid decision. But Jonathan didn't actually know about this edict or this rule until after he ate some honey, in verse 29. Um, Jonathan said, my father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brighten after I've tasted a little of this honey? How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from the enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been greater? So the word came back to Saul that his son Jonathan had eaten after the edict was given, given, his silly, silly edict that he gave. And the reaction from Saul is so, so strange. He had to maintain his pride and he still chose to kill his own son. And when reading of this, I was actually reminded of the story of Daniel in the lion's den because you had King Darius at the time who had no blood relationship with Daniel whatsoever. But he didn't even want to throw him in the den. But now in this story, you've got Saul and Jonathan, the same bloodline, the father, son. But because of the father's pride, he still chose to kill his own son to maintain this silly edict that he'd given out. In verse 43, then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me, what have you done? So Jonathan told him, 
I tasted a little honey with the end of my stock, and now I must die. So Saul is serious and wanted to continue with this. Verse 45. But the men said to Saul, should Jonathan die, he who has brought about the great deliverance in Israel? Never. As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. For he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not to death. Jonathan would have been dead if it wasn't for these men. But are you beginning to see how incompetent of a leader Saul actually is? Jonathan and Saul are complete opposites. It's flaw after flaw, and these flaws continue even after this. And as we move into the story of David, Saul's mess continues. So God commands, uh, in, an, in another situation, as we continue on um, in different chapters, in another story, God commands Saul to destroy all the Amalekites, including all their livestock. But again, Saul disobeys. He left King Agag alive and kept the best of his livestock. So Samuel again showed up and he confronts Saul and he says to him in chapter 15, verse 14, but Samuel said, what, this, what then is this bleating of sheep in my ear? What is this low, lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spread the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord our God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. So Saul at this point is just making excuses for his actions by saying, you know, God, I'm going to give some to God as sacrifices, but that's not what God commanded. So it doesn't matter. God doesn't want your sacrifices because that's not what he commanded you. So again, shifting blame. And in verse 22, but Samuel replied, this is what God said. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like evil of adultery. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. So, and then the, the reaction from Samuel was he, as an old man, picked up a sword and went to kill King Agag, just as had the, the Lord has commanded to do. And in chapter 16, we are finally introduced to David. Um, and we spoke about this a few weeks ago when um, Jonathan and Freddie were sharing with us. Um, but just quickly, uh, God chose David and told Samuel to not look at the outward appearance, but to look at the heart. David is then anointed. Saul is then tormented by an evil spirit from God. But David was a gifted musician and played music to soothe, to soothe Saul. And from being a musician for Saul, he became a warrior and killed Goliath. And now... David has access to the palace because he was invited in by uh, King Saul after the victory over Goliath. So now we pick up the story between David and Jonathan in uh, chapter 18, 1 to 4. And David had finished talking with Saul. Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword his bow and his belt he loved him so much 
that he would do absolutely anything for him. And David only survived because God allowed Jonathan to be part of his journey. And we'll see that later on as well. And let me just remind you that at this point, Jonathan now well and truly knows that he will never be king. It's impossible. God has not chosen Saul's line to continue. He will never be king. And the meaning of Jonathan's name is a gift from the Lord. That's what Jonathan means. And that's exactly what he was to David. He was a gift from the Lord to David. So the story develops uh, when David is now living at the palace and Saul gives him his daughter, Michael, to be married to David. Um, so now Saul is David's father-in-law and Jonathan is David's brother-in-law. And the Bible tells us that David was very popular among the people. He was very loved. And Saul begins to feel threatened by David. And this grows so much that Saul decides he must now kill David. So we pick up the story in chapter 19. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him. My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and I will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let's, um, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistines. Philistine, the Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? So listen to Jonathan and took this oath. Surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So this would be a great way to end the story, but this is not what happened. And this is not the end. David went to war against the Philistines and he defeated them. But while David was playing the liar for Saul, Saul threw his spear at David, but it only just missed him. So David actually ran away to escape, be murdered. And he ran home, and while he was at home with his um, wife, Saul tried to kill him again at his own home. But again, he escapes through the help of his wife. And this time, David ran to Samuel, and from there, he, he fled to Ramah. And at this point, David is very confused as to why Saul wants to kill him. He just can't understand why. And we'll see this in chapter 20 now as we read. Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I will do. So David said, look, tomorrow in the new moon feast, and I'm supposed to dine with the king. 
but let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for the whole clan. If he says, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he's determined to harm me. So what's happening here, there is a, a yearly dinner that happens that David is supposed to be at, but he gives a simple plan. Um, he says to Jonathan, uh, say that you've given me permission to not be there and be with my family back home. And if it doesn't matter to Saul, then there's nothing to fear. But if he becomes angry, then I know he wants to harm me. That's kind of just what's happening. We continue in verse 18. Then Jonathan said to David, tomorrow is the new moon feast. You will be missed because your seat will be empty. The day after tomorrow towards evening, go to the place where you hid where the trouble began and wait by the stone as well. I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I were shooting at a target. Then I will send a boy and say, go, find the arrows. If I say to him, look, the arrows are on the side of you, bring them here, then come. Because as surely as the Lord lives, you are safe. There is no danger. But if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go because the Lord has sent you away. And about the matter you and I discussed, remember, the Lord is witness between you and me forever. So now there's a feast that's about to happen. And we're going to read that as well. So uh, at that point, Saul is asking, where, where is David? And Jonathan explains to him where he was, just as they had planned together. He's with his family and whatnot. And this was his reaction in verse 30. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellion woman. And um, I laugh at that because that's exactly what you think it means uh, today. Um, and then we continue. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he, put, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul heard his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him. And he said to the boy, run and find the arrows I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other, both, and wept together. But David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left and went back to the town. When I read that, I'm just, it's such a precious friendship. It, it, it's amazing, you know, and it's an unlikely friendship as well because David was a shepherd. Jonathan was a prince. Jonathan had his own armor. David had a harp and a slingshot. Jonathan grew up in a palace and he was trained in the art of war. David grew up in a little town of Bethlehem and was trained to tend sheep. Jonathan was the oldest son and in, and in line to inherit the throne. David was the youngest of eight boys and anointed to, uh, the next king in the place of Jonathan. 
Jonathan was of the tribe of Benjamin, David was the tribe of Judah. But despite of these differences, despite of these crazy differences, they had arguably the best friendship the world has ever known. And in this story, Saul spends the rest of his life hunting David, and all because he knew that God has turned away from him and has anointed David as king. And David spent his days running or fleeing until Saul had died. But God was with David while he was escaping all of those times. And actually, during the time that David was escaping, Jonathan actually found ways to communicate with David, to encourage, to uplift, and to find strength in God. To find strength in God. 1 Samuel 23, 17. Um, Jonathan says, don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The more I read the story, the more I learn new things, but the more that I'm fascinated by Jonathan and his character and his relationship uh, with David. He's truly a great man, a man that is willing to lay down the crown for the sake of what God has anointed. There was no jealousy whatsoever. He was very loyal. And Jonathan didn't just accept his non-kingly role, but he became the friend and protector of the one who was put in his place. Jonathan is truly a man of character. And later on, Jonathan and his two other brothers were killed. And Saul killed himself after being wounded heavily at war. And we see the, uh, the reaction of David after he hears the news of Jonathan's death. He says in 2 Samuel 1.25, how the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on the heights, on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than the love of women. More, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. And in this, David is not in any way, shape or form demeaning the love between a husband and a wife. But he's emphasizing that his love for Jonathan was a love with no physical elements. But it was built on their love for God and believing his word would be fulfilled. Their common obedience gave them a common uh, friendship. And you see, that is the same for us. Your common obedience to God, your common belief in God gives you a common friendship. And there is a reason why Christian fellowship, there is a reason why the people in this room and the people of core church have the special bond together that perhaps you don't find in non-Christian communities. Because it's a God-ordained friendship. It's, it's a God-given love for each other. Because this community is special, this community is something to be appreciated, this community is something to be held with such great honor and appreciation because it's God-given friendship, just like the friendship of David and Jonathan. The more we focus on God, the more we grow closer together in our friendship, together individually and as a community. And as we continue the story, David and Jonathan previously made a promise to support each other's families forever. And that promise continued after death as well. 
You see, Jonathan had only one son, and his name was Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth became fatherless at the age of five years old because that's when Jonathan had died. But he also had a nanny. And when this nanny heard the news of Jonathan's death, she grabbed Mephibosheth at the age of five and ran. And as she was running, she dropped him. I think, sorry, he would have been younger than five. And as she was running, she dropped him and broke both his legs. And due to this accident, Mephibosheth was permanently disabled because obviously back then, doctors and um, health and all this sort of stuff, it wasn't so advanced as it is now. So this was a, a pretty serious thing for a child, as it still is, I guess. So many years later, to keep the promise that he had made with his dear friend, David and Jonathan, he seeks out Mephibosheth as he's older and he invites him to the palace. So this is David now as king. And in 2 Samuel 9, 7 to 12, it says, Don't be afraid, David said to, to him, Mephibosheth, for I, will surely you, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather's soul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And, Mephibosheth, uh, and, Mesh and Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 12 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord, the king, commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth, difficult name. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. And all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both of So now we have the relationship between David and Mephibosheth. And that relationship, if you look at it, is actually very symbolic to the relationship between Jesus and us. You see, David sought him out. He welcomed him to his palace. And he did this even though he was the grandson of Saul, David's greatest enemy. Mephibosheth could do absolutely nothing to repay David. But David still invited him to his family and to eat at his table. And actually, at that, at that time, David didn't only have to do this, but David actually had a right to slay all the family of Saul and the descendants. But he didn't do that. He kept the promise that he gave to Jonathan. Just like Jonathan protected David all along, David is now doing the same for Jonathan. Mephibosheth then had a son, as we said, sorry, it's Micah, not Micah. And this continued the lineage of Jonathan for generations. So, in kind of wrapping up what we have just spoken about, what do we take from this? I guess what we do take from this is that friendship is God-given, that a true friend helps you find strength in God, just like Jonathan did to David. It's not just about giving advice to your friends in times of difficulty, but it's leading them towards Christ for Christ to be the center of their problems 
not for you to be the, the, the voice that helps them. It's not you that helps them, it's God that supports. We also learn that, you know, as Jesus commanded, love your neighbor as yourself. You see, while most men in Jonathan's shoes would have felt jealous, would have felt threatened, Jonathan saw what God saw in David. As we read, God doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at an outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And David was a man after God's own heart. See, David gets a lot of recognition for the story, but I also think that Jonathan should get a lot of credit for this as well because he laid down everything to do what God had ordained. And lastly, Jesus is the only friend you need. In John 15, 3, it says, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friend. And Jesus did exactly that for us, that he sent his son to die on the cross for us, that there is no greater love than Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. So let me ask us some things tonight. Would you still love your friend if they fulfilled what you had hoped to be your life's ambition? Would you love a friend if they are elevated above your own? Are we selfless, humble, loyal, and loving in our relationships? Do we love our friends more than ourselves? Are we eager to obey and put God above every Thing, even our own desires because true friendship according to the bible involves loyalty sacrifice compassion and emotional attachment are we like that in our friendships i'll finish with this quote from c.s lewis and it says friendship is unnecessary like philosophy like art it has no survival value rather it is one of those things which gives value to survival We need friendship for survival. It's God-given. And as we get closer to God, our friendships get closer as well. Let's move our friends towards Christ. Let's be a community who honors God and puts God above everything. That if God tells us to put our friends above ourselves as he does, we do so.